Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Give them a gift they'll never forget because they'll still have it years later. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age. Like their iconic full zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. Because a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. So be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Code GRATEFULAG23. Tortoise. Welcome. I'm James Harding. I'm joined by Rory Stewart who's written a fair few books, but perhaps if you are trying to understand the culture and the character of British politics, none better than politics on the edge, I have to confess, Rory, finding it totally gripping and also in many ways quite upsetting, um, not least because you feel like someone who is fascinated by politics and then at a very personal level is deeply frustrated and falls out of love with it. Yes, I mean it's it's um, so politics on the edge is really a story of really thinking that being a member of parliament, being a minister, is the great meaning of life. I mean, I, I in a very romantic way, I used to kind of read Aristotle. He said, "Man is a political animal," and get this kind of idea that by being an active citizen, you were really doing everything you needed to do in life, and that this was. So and and you know I got these extraordinary jobs that, on the surface, were amazing. You know I was made the environment minister, and so in theory, I would have been able to plant hundreds of millions of trees, clean up Britain's air, clean up our beaches, support the national parks, think about what the British environment could be in in twenty five years time, and then I hit the reality, and the gap between. <laughs> whatever dreams I had of politics and changing the world and the reality of what this thing really is, is astonishing. I mean, so much more extreme than anything I ever saw. I was briefly in the army. I was a British diplomat in the foreign service. It's not that I'm new to government, but it is so much madder than anything that you've ever seen as a civil servant. People were really nasty. Yes, I think that's another thing that's odd. I mean, I think the only, I mean, I, I, it's very odd workplace. I mean, you know, I would go, I remember giving a speech on Iraq and then walking out with an MP from my own party of fellow backbencher who said to me, your speech was absolute bullshit. And I challenged him, got an argument with him. And then he said, I'm going to punch you on the nose right behind the speaker's chair. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny example. But the atmosphere is very kind of um, weird, macho, semi-bullying. And of course, we've seen now you know, not, not that I'm the major sufferer from this. I mean, we now see accounts of rape, sexual harassment, bullying coming out from MPs from all parties consistently, a really weird culture. I mean, if you were to document over the last 13 years 
the kinds of things that MPs have done. I mean, you just think there can't be a workplace, couldn't have been a workplace like this since sort of madmen in the 1950s. And why is that? Do you think is that frustrated ego? Is that drink? What are the ingredients of that sour culture? Well, I think people, and of course, most of these are men, uh, can behave very badly anyway when they're all locked up together and they're bitter and they haven't been promoted and they've had a few drinks. And it's a pretty strange, humiliating life. Um, it's a very weird life. I mean, it, it, you know, you can be an MP for 40 years. Your salary never goes up. You're paid the same as the person that was elected a week ago. And you can feel them entering and roaring past you to become a minister and you're still sitting on the back benches and nobody pays any attention to you and your constituents are rude to you and people are rude to you on trains and your wife's probably rude to you. And So there's a lot of disappointed, bitter people. But I think more than that, because you're elected by the public, you don't have a boss. There's no management structure. There's nobody to say you can't behave like that because at some level you feel, I'm elected, I can do what I want. And actually, to some extent, the public wants you encourages you in some moods to stand up, challenge things. They like authentic, public often like the idea of authenticity, disruption. So it's a particularly toxic kind of um, kind of combination. How impactful was your time in politics? How much difference did I make to the world? Very little. I mean, I think if I, and it's very sad to say, I mean, I was the Secretary of State for International Development with a budget of $20 billion a year. 13,000 million pounds a year. And even before I actually said I was minister for a couple of years in the same department with about half that budget. So you can make a lot of difference to the world, you would have thought, with that kind of money. Yeah. And yet, boy, did it not feel like it. It felt incredibly distanced from the ground, very, very difficult to see an impact, very difficult to actually change the structures of things. The, the only time when I really felt that I was beginning to get a sense of the job was when I was prisons minister. But even then, what I did there was spend six months trying to understand the system and eventually realized the only way I was actually going to be able to shift things is by doing what I've been reluctant to do, which is produce a slogan, go out to the media, say, I'm going to resign in 12 months unless I bring violence down. And by making a big public thing of it, suddenly I was able to get uh, you know, an operations room in the Ministry of Justice. We were able to focus on 10 prisons. We could get some extra resources in. But it, it's, it's rare. And I think a lot of... What the public doesn't understand is that most of the daily life of MPs and many, many junior ministers is one of daily disillusionment and despair. I mean, I, I talk obviously all the time to ministers. I talk to a junior ministers who are, are not junior ministers, ministers of state who are attending the cabinet, who with incredible job titles that sound like they've got the most James Bond interesting job in the world, who are just feel that their life is completely hopeless and pointless. And of course, we're all changed by what we do. How did being a politician change the way you thought or spoke or interacted with others? I think in the, in the long run, what it did is it left me a bit bruised and gun shy. I mean, I've become um, hyper sensitive, hyper vigilant to people criticizing me partly because you spend nine and a half years waking up every morning opening your Twitter or looking at the newspaper and you're being frontally assaulted. And that then means that I've become too sensitive. I mean, what politics did to me is actually make my thin skinner rather than thicker. <laughs> I end up now at the time when I open my Twitter account and someone says mildly disobliging, something mildly, I sort of res respond, it's like an electric shock. So I think that's one thing that 
politics did to me. It's made me less confident, less clear about my views. And yet the rest is politics is a place where week in, week out, you, I was going to say, you're invited to comment. <laughs> you invite yourself to comment. You're there to do that. Has it made you more critical of others? I think my experience in politics really convinced me this is a rotten, broken system and that it produced some awful behavior and that I needed to find a way of speaking about that. I mean, and, and it's been very difficult to get the message across because, of course, the obvious response, and some of the reviews try to do this, is to say, oh, well, Rory's just bitter. Mm. And he's he's cross that he didn't become prime minister. Or he's cross he didn't get promoted soon enough. And he grumbles about Boris Johnson, but basically he and Boris are the same person. He's just jealous that he's not Boris. I'm trying to say in the book, it's much more serious than that. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be like a, a doctor describing a hospital falling to pieces. I don't think it comes across as bitter. I think it comes across as sad. And I find myself reading it and thinking, what can be done? Because the combination of the people and the process of politics and frankly, the public expectation of what government can do just feels like a combination that is destined for failure. And you then get to the point, Rory, where you're thinking the democracy that I go out and argue for, when I look under the hood, when I look you know, at how that engine's actually running, it's not. So what do you do when people say, OK, fine, fine. That's great. We appreciate it's not going great. What do we do about it? So I think there, there are two sorts of things you have to do. One of them is you need to change the structures, and the other is you need to change some of the internal character of the people. And neither of those things are easy. Structures, we would be better off if we had a New Zealand-style electoral system with a bit of proportional representation in where we could bring in new fresh blood. I'd like to see our ministers... Um, kept in position for at least two years and given three, four weeks of training before they take over their jobs. I'd like to see the civil servants moved around much less frequently. I'd like to see more cabinet ministers appointed from outside parliament. I think that, um, you know, whatever the details of this appointment that we've just heard about with David Cameron as foreign secretary, I'd like to see more senior credible people from outside brought in rather than desperately fishing in this very limited pool of MPs. So that's, that's one set of reforms. And then there's the question of the characters of people. I mean, that's even more difficult because fundamentally it's about moral education. It's about how do you get politicians to ask themselves at some point in their day, am I doing the right thing? Is this something I actually believe in? And I think politics has always been a weird game in which probably... 30% uh, of the time you're worrying about your career, the votes, promotion, 70% of the time you're thinking about the job. But it's flipped round. I think now most of the time you're thinking about your career, your promotion, your votes, and less and less about the job. And I, I'm afraid I see it with all parties. I mean, I see it. You know, I've been very, very shocked by what Labour and Keir Starmer are saying at the moment about prisons and criminal justice 
it's, it shocks me particularly because I think Keir Starmer is somebody who really knows that stuff. He was director of public prosecutions. His whole professional life has been there. He must know what the right thing to do is. And he's just not even paying lip service to it. I'm sorry, what's he saying? I haven't followed this. So, so Keir Starmer is effectively on the side of lock them up, fill the prisons. He's put out social media posts saying, do you think that people who sexually assault children should go to prison? Rishi Sunak doesn't. And then at the bottom, under the Conservatives, 1,600 people who sexually assaulted children uh, were spared jail. And the implication being he'd lock them all up. He knows perfectly well, as I know, having worked in Ministry of Justice, that those people were not put in jail for a good reason. Judges looked at the cases. They might have been people with learning difficulties. They might have been minors themselves. The offence might have been touching. I mean, it, it, there are many, many reasons why it doesn't make sense to put someone in jail. And it's a litmus test because our prisons are inhumane, overcrowded, deeply depressing, shaming places. And the one thing that anybody who understands the system should know is that we cannot be shoving more people into these horrible systems when all it does is cause more reoffending, more misery for the public. So I tend to judge people on a subject that they know about and try to judge a politician on when, on something they know about, whether they're prepared to hold the line and at least shut up about it, not, not take a position viscerally opposed to what they must know is the correct position. There's a scene in your book when you're thinking about running for the leadership. Theresa May is in the dying days of her premiership. Just talk through your calculations on that and how you thought about it and what you thought you'd do if you were prime minister. So um, to begin with, I thought, firstly, the Conservative Party is tearing itself to pieces, but more importantly... We are going to lose our opportunity for a soft Brexit. I wanted a kind of customs union, customs union Brexit. And I felt that we had a chance to find a compromise and try to bring together people who voted Remain and leave. And I was horrified at the idea that we were going to head down a far right position. I was also horrified about the fact the most likely next prime minister was Boris Johnson, who I thought would ignite a lot of the worst populist tendencies in the, the British right. So I started by thinking, okay, can I get other standard bearers of the left of the Conservative Party to stand? And the answer was none of them wanted to stand. I then tried to sort out on my dining room table a little uh, flowchart, trying to work out what the chances were of somebody from the left of the party winning. And I convinced myself it was almost impossible. <laughs> and then I decided to stand. Um, uh, and it was an amazing experience in a way because you're trying to appeal to people's sense of reason. You know, what's going to happen to Northern Ireland if we follow the Boris Johnson position? Or you're trying to appeal to their sense of truth. Can you possibly vote for this guy who's a proven liar? Or you're trying to appeal to their friendship and loyalty to get to vote for you. And they are weighing that up against the single brutal fact that Boris Johnson looks like he's going to win and he's going to be very popular with the party. And in the end, for most of the MPs, that trumped the other considerations. Loyalty, truth and reason. Yeah. There were two elements of your leadership uh, campaign, or at least the, pre 
the pregame that really tickled me. One was you taking a run round Hyde Park with your wife discussing whether or not you should put your hat in the ring. I remember reading and thinking that's a, a bit annoying to be able to go jogging and consider running the country at the same time. Most people do one or the other. But the bit that I really enjoyed was there's an account, Rory, of you and your young family heading up uh, on the train to Penrith. The kids on Paw Patrol, uh, not on Paw Patrol, watching Paw Patrol on the iPad. And you and Shoshana trying to work out what your manifesto would be this kind of bullet point effort. And can I just go back to that train journey, looking now at what the sort of five, 10 bullet points really should have been Mm. to do the things you're talking about, change the culture and nature of our political system, but also give people a confidence in our politics that things get done. What do you put on that list? Yeah, I think the first thing at that time, of course, is to get a decent workable deal with the European Union. So that that is, and I don't know how you package that, and one of the problems is that in a very polarized world, the question of what you think is the right thing, in other words, a, a soft Brexit against what's politically possible is a big question, but that, that would have had to be the first. I think the second thing is to bring back a sense of decency in our politics and be very clear about what that meant. And I think decency is a good word because it extends all the way from prisons being a humiliating, disgusting disgrace, all the way through to the Nolan Principle standards in public office and making it clear that you're going to clean house of people who, who break those principles and don't stand for what you believe in. But perhaps most importantly of all, I think there are two things which are difficult to communicate politically, but which are at the heart of everything we need to do. One of them is decentralization. You need to take power away from the center, not just politically. So it's not just about taking power away from Westminster and letting local mayors have more power. Also economically, the only way of bringing regeneration to the north of England, shifting economic power from the southeast up to the north, is to really devolve that power, that economic power down to those local authorities so they can come up with their own industrial strategies. And the second theme, which is very, very unsexy, but is at the heart of everything, is the question of institutions. Mm. Our institutions are rotting. Parliament civil service most of all. But I think our media is rotting. I think our universities are rotting. I think there are many, many bits of public life which are in a, in a terrible state. And rebuilding the confidence of institutions, the values of institutions, I think, is what I would like to do. Now, whether I would have put that in my bullet points, I'm not sure. And what do you say to people, Rory, who say to you, okay, that's okay if you feel that way, but you've given up power for a podcast. You're just going to howl at the moon now. Yeah, so that's that's a big problem for me. I mean, it's it's something I worry about a great, great deal. I mean, you know, there's a very, very strong part of me that feels I ought to be in public service and that I ought to be finding a way back and feels enormous envy of David Cameron being given a chance to be Foreign Secretary, obviously. Um, you know, I would have accepted, if in, in an unlikely world in which Rishi Sunak offered me that job, I would have accepted like a shot. The question of whether... I have it in me to go through the bruising, brutal experience again that I describe in that book. I mean, I put nearly 10 years of my life into trying to navigate the loyalties of the Conservative Party, the whips, the, you know, I don't want to sound like Hamlet, but there's a lot, <laughs> lot of horror to horror, <laughs> horror going on there, um, uh, is, is the problem for me. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm 50 years old. I think that 
government is still, for me, just for me. I mean, so I, didn't, I, I think, you know, if I was younger, I might think it's a universal statement, but certainly for me, is the most worthwhile thing that you can possibly do with your life. And yet I'm not doing it. So what do you do next? Um, I try to rebuild my strength, get my rhinoceros hide a bit thicker again. And I try to work out if politics is ever going to change in such a way that I have an opportunity, whether a liberal centre-right can be rebuilt, whether there's paths for independence, whether there's ways of my re-engaging with government without being an active politician. I don't know. And Rory, you were a member of the Labour Party before you were a member of the Conservative Party. Why not stop waiting for a call from Rishi and pick up the phone to Keir? Uh, very good question. Um, I guess, um, firstly, I'd feel a level of embarrassment. I mean, people would think this is a pretty careerist move. Looks like Kirsten was about to win the next election. Pretty convenient, Rory, that she suddenly <laughs> discovered your Labour Party credentials a year before they get into government. Um, I think, and of course, you know, like everybody, or not like everybody, like most people, I can come up with lots of things I don't like about the Labour Party just as I've got lots of things I don't like about the Conservative Party. I mean, one of the problems with contemporary politics is it is about your party, right or wrong. People don't fully understand this. But once you're in government, you're out there day in, day out. This is the problem with Boris Johnson becoming prime minister. You're in the television studios, if you're in his cabinet, day in, day out, defending. But, but, but there's, there's a really interesting moment where, in the, I think it's in your leadership campaign, where you do something brilliantly crass, which is you go and do a video because you're standing in front of a coffee shop and the person taking the video says, well, hold your hand up as if you're doing it as a selfie. Yeah. Then they discover that actually they, you were filmed. Yeah. But the really powerful thing that happens, of course, is that you then get asked, are you pretending to do a selfie? Yeah. And you go, yes. Right? right. You acknowledge how inauthentic you were yeah. in that moment and you suddenly get authenticity chops. Yeah. Isn't the truth that most people change who they vote for, or at least a lot do? It's not impossible to say, yes, I was part of a conservative government. Like a lot of people, I would like to be part of a labor team that makes a difference. Isn't that embarrassment your echo chamber rather than what the public might think? And I'm sure some people yeah, would think yeah, you were yeah, like, yeah, you know, gaming yeah. it for your own advantage. But actually, it's not impossible to get over that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know how to answer these questions. I... I, I, I think that the, the starting point, James, is that I would desperately love to be back in government again, notwithstanding all of that. I, I'd love to have the responsibility of trying to help make things better. I think I'm better now at thinking about how government civil service works than I was in the past. Um, and But, but equally, I, I haven't begun to think through what that means in terms of how I work with parties in a political system. And what do you think about... There's an easy thing to say here, which is, well, that probably means that you could go for either party. Right. Or, or the Lib Dems or an independent or any number of things. Yeah. Let's yeah. not forget the Lib Dems. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that <laughs> loving and generous moment. <laughs> but what about the other question, which is the creation, the forging, the development of another political party. Do you think, having given that a go, that's just not possible in our system? I had a brutal experience trying to run as an independent to be mayor of London. And the, the fundamental problem with it was that what I was doing initially in 2019, 2020, until the election was delayed by COVID, was tough. But it was just about possible because the London mayoral thing was 
like the French presidential system, if I'd come second uh, to Sadiq Khan, I could then, there was then be a runoff where I could have got the conservative votes and come and potentially beaten him. They've now changed it to a first-past-the-post system with Labour connivance. These two parties just made everything now first-past-the-post around the country, which makes it unbelievably difficult for a sort of Macron moment or a new party to break through. And just in doing the podcast with Alistair, how much have you learned about what the difference is between, quote-unquote, being Labour and being Conservative? I wondered if you could get an AI model to essentially dub in Alistair's voice with what you say and yours with what Alistair says. How much of a difference there really is? How, how big is our political gulf between the parties rather than within them? I think um, there's not much gulf between me and Alistair on many of the things that the news focuses on. But there are big gulfs on things the news doesn't focus on. For example? So, for example, we agree that Suella Braverman is a terrible person and we think Boris Johnson is a, is a fraud. But Alistair is deeply, deeply focused on the issue of class. It's the thing that he thinks is the big driver in British politics. And by class, he doesn't interestingly mean economic class. He means social class. He doesn't seem to acknowledge somebody from a working class background with money could be in a position of inequality, or he very rarely talks about that. He's obsessed with, for example, private schools in Eton, which he talks about all the time. And I think that's true of a lot of the labor movement. I, I mean, one of the things that I want to say is that what really matters is not actually whether you have a posh accent or not, although I agree that that can determine many things, but it's the inequality between the 60% who own houses and the 40% who don't. I also think that I am much, much more prudent about foreign adventures than Alistair or Tony Blair would be. I think that New Labour vision of the world was neoconservative. It was triumphalist. It believed that you could invade Iraq or Afghanistan, turn them into democracies, fix states. And that tells you a lot about them. It tells you that they had a very centralized view. I mean, to come back to my centralized, decentralized view, I think there is a socialist tradition at the heart of the Labour Party, which in the end is about central planning. It's about wise people in the middle, uh, in, the, in the center, telling other people what to do. I am more skeptical of government. I'm more inclined to want to decentralize and let local communities get on with things. I'm also much less revolutionary. I mean, I think you know, the, 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 the secret's in the word conservative. I mean, I tend to be much more uh, attentive to tradition, to the past, to history. I mean, I notice, you know, when I tweet out something about um, the state opening of parliament and I'm moved by the fact that the image of the king and the House of Lords is identical to a picture painted in 1530. Alistair's immediate response is, this is a total disgrace. We should blow the whole thing up. And all his Twitter followers, the same. Right? They, they simply don't begin to have any of the cultural or emotional resonances that I have. I was going to Rory finish with one thought, but actually I'd like to finish, given what you just said, with two. The thing that I wanted to ask you about was the division over power. There's been – we had Yasha Munk here a few weeks ago, and, you know, Yasha Munk has probably done more to kind of weigh in on populism and its threats to democracy, but he's now leaning in on identity politics. And the argument that he's essentially making is that – Principles that govern the way in which people thought about identity, particularly around civil rights and 
institutions, a kind of institutional liberalism, has been replaced by an argument about power. The powerless, the good and the truthful, the powerful, the not to be trusted and the exploitative. And Barry Weiss has written a similar piece about that. And so I'm interested in how someone like you, who I think of as a progressive person, a person rooted in thinking about rights and rule of law, thinks about this new dynamic of the powerful and the powerless and how that plays out in politics, particularly discussions of groups and communities, whether it's around race or sex or gender or history. But the reason I said two thoughts is that just listening to you there, there's a whole different dynamic, which is how people think about the relationship between the past and the present, how much holding on to the past is what defines you political, politically versus a kind of enthusiasm for the unknown of the future. And I just wonder, just in terms of political philosophy, put aside labor and conservative, will you just talk about the social element of politics, how you express what society is and should be, and how you've come to think about that. So that is, by the way, the Jim Nochty Award for the world's longest question. <laughs> um, so I think, um, well, firstly, Politics on the Edge is partly about the weirdness of what we call representation, which is to say, and representation is a very odd word. Because, of course, what a member of parliament is claiming to do is speak for their electors, speak for the people. But of course, we're much more aware than we probably would have been a few decades ago about how strange that relationship is. We don't know much about other people's lives. I come from a very privileged position. What right have I got to speak for a Cumbrian farmer on a low income, somebody on benefits, somebody from a different ethnic background, somebody from a different gender? So there is that whole question of, of representing people, understanding people, working out what they want. And then there's the question of leadership. To what extent you challenge what they want <laughs> and try to suggest that there is a better way of doing things, that what they say at the moment isn't right. So, for example, uh, people might have wanted um, on either extremes. They might have wanted uh, to have a very, very hard Brexit. And I might want to say, no, I think we need a soft Brexit. Or people might have wanted a second referendum. I might have wanted to say, I don't think that's realistic. I think we need to go for a soft Brexit. In both cases, of course, the public thinks, what the hell do you think you're doing? I've elected you. Do what I say, right? <laughs> um, and, Represent and, me as in be me. Yeah, be me. Yeah. And, and I think this goes to the question of power. I think Yashimank is absolutely right. We have a real problem with power. It's, it would have been easier 100 years ago to get your head around the fact that your member of parliament might have a completely different analysis of the world to the one that you did and have the power to follow through on that, even if you didn't want it. Today, we all feel that our idea of democracy is that the politician should be doing what I want. Right? I also think that what Yashimank is getting at and is at the heart of a lot of our problems is the collapse of classical liberalism. I mean, I talk about it as the collapse of the liberal global order or the collapse of the sort of Blair project. But fundamentally, it's the idea of the 1990s that a particular vision of democracy and liberalism and free markets had triumphed and we all knew what we were talking about and human rights through law. What we're now finding on both left and right is the emergence of darker, older forces on the right, forms of nationalism, and on the left basically a Marxist worldview, that everything's about power, that liberalism is just a cloak to protect the elite. 
And of course, both these critiques have force. There's a reason why communist movements, reason, reason why communist movements were successful, reason why fascist movements were successful when liberalism is under strain. Because of course, it's true that a lot of things went wrong in the 90s. There was real inequality in Britain. Our military adventures went horribly wrong. The rise of China completely upset people's ideas about the relationship between democracy and prosperity. So the challenge for our generation really is, is there something to be said that both accepts the criticism of liberalism, but reanimates the center ground? Isn't there quite a big branding problem you've got there with liberalism itself? Because when we set up Tortoise, this really fascinated me. It was clearly the case, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was leading the Labour Party. Socialism seemed discredited, not just by him, but by the agenda. And then we looked at liberalism. And the thing that was striking, and still is striking to me, is that we all lost a sense of what it was. Was it A, a way of thinking that would root people's freedoms and opportunities in rights and laws? Or was the understanding that institutions representative of those rights and laws would pr protect people's freedoms and, and opportunities? I, there was a stronger sense of the state as a guardian of freedoms and opportunities. And I think that from 89, through the generation in which I've had such an incredible and interesting time, we essentially got too in the grip of the idea that liberalism was about light touch everything and that market and society would do its thing. And I don't know whether you can recommission the word liberalism to mean, it's not very sexy, institutional liberalism. <laughs> so how do you land that, Rory? And how do you land that as a politician, given the pull of the two political parties, frankly, in opposite directions? You win, I think, by harnessing the emotional energy of left and right but above all by delivering. So I think it's by effective action. I think if you can communicate that you're gonna get stuff done and you can acknowledge the left's demand for justice, you can acknowledge the right's demand for liberty, but what you have to convey in the center ground is extreme competence, extreme energy, extreme ability to deliver. And I think if you can do that, if you can give people a sense in a country that things are going somewhere, they can put up with a lot of other stuff. And it's astonishing what you, how people with very different political views can get behind governments that seem to have a sense of forward direction. Do you think you'll stay in the UK? I don't know. It's a good question, James. I mean, I think I'm haunted by all these questions, but I don't know how I would find any sense of meaning or vocation outside the UK, given that... Well, you had a go in a few places. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but given that, you know, my whole mad worldview, which is about public service, is really about UK public service. It's about trying to work out how I serve, you know, I mean, I think this whole idea of sort of serving king and country is basically about as far as I can get in terms of <laughs> working out the meaning of my life. Rory, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, if you haven't yet read Politics on the Edge, do. Um, we did lots of big ideas. There is a wonderful litany of stories in there. So if you've listened to this and you haven't yet read it, do pick it up. Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart. Rory, thanks very much. Thank you. Tortoise. 
Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Talk you through the next few weeks of political chaos. Join me, Beth Rigby, Conservative peer Ruth Davidson. It's hard when you're running a campaign and you're on the go every day. Labour peer Aisha Hazarika will be joining us every Tuesday. What is he going to do to fix Britain? That is the really important message. With more special guests from Jess Phillips' subbench each Friday. So listen now to Electoral Dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.